This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 5. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin. My guest for today's podcast is Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel. In our first segment, Kevin will talk about employment contracts and why they should be considered when an orthodontist is an independent contractor or an employee. And in our second segment, Kevin will explain and speak to the advisability of participating in charity auctions or group discounts. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. Thank you, Pam. Uh, a conversation about employment contracts really is a timely thing, given that such a significant segment of AAO members now work as employees or as independent contractors in dental service companies or for dental or pediatric dental practices. When we talk about contracts, are we talking about getting something in writing? And is this for independent contractors or employees or everybody? Thank you, Pam. There is a big difference between written and unwritten contracts. An agreement is a contract. It can be on a handshake. Uh, The problem with an unwritten contract is it can be very expensive to figure out exactly what was agreed to if a judge or a mediator has to figure out what the intent of the parties was. That is why the AEO always encourages orthodontists who are entering into a dental service organization or an orthodontist who is looking at taking on an associate or a partner Always get a written contract that that spells out the rights and obligations of both parties clearly and succinctly and comprehensively so that there isn't any ambiguity or any confusion as to what those rights or obligations are. What kinds of things should be spelled out in a contract? Pam, literally everything about the relationship between the two orthodontists and how those orthodontists are going to relate to patients should be contemplated in that contract. First and foremost, I think you have to figure out if you're an employee or an independent contractor and what kind of status you're going into. And, and that's that's an important thing to distinguish at the very front end because it has legal implications not only uh, as it relates to the two orthodontists, but also as it relates to the orthodontist and the state, the state dental board, and the patients. Uh, you have to be very careful when entering into that kind of arrangement, an independent contractor arrangement, to ensure that you are not running afoul of state fee splitting or referral fee laws. Some states, 50 different states, 50 different ways of interpreting these things. Many are very similar, but it's tricky. And I bring that up now to say that anytime you enter into an independent contractor relationship, be very careful about how that is structured so that you don't run afoul of fee splitting issues. And and by the way, the vast majority of all states, if not all states, would say that um, there's a bias towards employee status. So regardless of what the contract says, if there aren't certain protections that are required for an independent contractor status, you're going to be considered an employee anyway. And that's probably more instructive for the employer to understand because if you are miscategorizing someone as an independent contractor, when they're really by law, by common law, and by your state labor relations board, they're really an employee, you can get into tax problems because you haven't been withholding the appropriate amount of taxes and and paying their social security fees and and things like that. Um, So that's the number one thing you really have to hammer out at the outset, employee status, independent contractor status. Just to touch on some of the other major things I think really are, are what I see most questioned when a relationship turns sour, which they almost always do. And I'm just going to run down things off the top of my head. Record keeping. Who is in charge of maintaining the records? And when an employee or an independent contractor leaves the practice, is there a non-compete clause? 
is there or a non-complete non-compete agreement in the absence of a written contract and is that even enforceable if there's not a written contract can they contact the patients that they were working on or are they barred from contacting the patients another footnote about that pam is that some states may say regardless of what that contract says the doctor patient relationship exists with the doctor who is treating those patients in this case the employee or the independent contractor and even if that contract says you can't contact those patients after you leave or in the in the case of termination of that agreement that that's not valid you absolutely can contact those patients because you're their doctor so even if the contract says you can't you might be able to again another reason to hire a competent attorney in your jurisdiction to make sure that that contract agrees with state law one of the most important things i think that needs to be contemplated in any contract is patient selection something we'll talk a little bit more about in the in the second segment in a different context and treatment diagnostic decisions what diagnostic uh, exams are going to be taken and also when to terminate this is a big one because if imagine if you're the employee or the independent contractor whatever the case may be and you're treating a patient and that patient has signed a financial contract with your employer and the patient is is showing up for appointments and they have great hygiene and they're moving right along. Maybe even there's a space that has to be closed because it was an extraction case and you're waiting for a space to close or you're holding a space open or something like that. And the patient is not paying. And your employer comes to you and says, your, your patient is not paying. We are going to terminate that patient. That puts you as the employee, as the doctor of that patient in a very difficult position because you are getting your paycheck from the corporation, we'll say, or the LLC, which is a corporation, but yet you have no control over when your patient is being dismissed. However, if your patient is dismissed and harm comes to that patient, particularly in a case where there's a space being held open or something like that, they're going to come back and they're going to sue you for malpractice. Now, they might also sue your employer, but they're going to sue you. So, that is one of the most important things to contemplate in any contract to make sure that you, as the employee, or independent contractor have the ability to determine when a patient can be dismissed or when they can't be dismissed because ultimately you're on the hook for the malpractice. Um, other things, you know, vacation time, how, how much time you have to put in, uh, you have to give notice for vacation. Again, I, I mentioned non-compete. You need to negotiate a non-compete to contemplate when that contract ends and you want to set up your own practice if you can or how far away uh, you can do that. The contact of patients, I mentioned that before, upon separation, if it ends badly, needs to be contemplated. You need to know what your rights are when it comes to contacting your patients. What about insurance? Is that something that comes to play in the contract as to what kind you need and who pays for it? Absolutely. That, that can all be part of the negotiation of a compensation package. You, you may, as an employee, wish to retain your own insurance, liability insurance. Sometimes an employer, I think this is an increasingly common scenario where the employer says, we, we have group coverage and if you are coming into our practice, you are going to buy insurance from, from our insurance company. Again, though, if, if you don't have a written contract, that's something that is Nobody really knows what the answer to that question is. And you, you may have discussed it beforehand, before the handshake agreement, or you may not have. But if you didn't discuss it, then you don't have any real uh, agreement or a meeting of the mind, so to speak. When you enter that relationship, you get there on day one, and you don't know if you even have malpractice coverage or even if you're even thinking about it. You may assume that your employer is covering it, and, and they're assuming that, you're, that you have your own. Again, just another reason to have a locked tight, solid, written agreement that everybody understands what the boundaries are. 
So I'm going to come in as uh, I'm going to be an independent contractor for uh, a practice, a dental practice or, or possibly a pediatric dental practice. And I have stars in my eyes because I have a job. I've got, you know, I'm going to be able to start paying off my debt and, you know, pay down my credit cards and so forth. What happens, you know, we just don't quite get around to, to executing a contract. Is that a bad thing? In the vast majority of circumstances, it's probably going to be a bad thing because unless that relationship, professional and personal, goes off smoothly and without a hitch and lasts for years, which is, as you might expect, highly uncommon, there's going to be a time when that relationship sours and that person, the employer, the independent contractor, whatever they are, and if they don't have a written contract, you may not really know what they are, is going to leave. And they're going to want to set up their own practice. At that point, who could, you know, all those things that we listed in, in the previous question, you know, who controls the records? Uh, who can contact? How far away can you set up your practice? When can you set it up? Are all left up in the air. And it's going to get very costly because what will happen in the absence of a written contract, if you cannot work out an amicable resolution with the other doctor that employed you, it's going to go to a mediator or a judge. And they're going to go through and they're going to sift through perhaps emails that you exchanged at the beginning of the relationship. He said, she said kind of evidence, perhaps witnesses who could testify as to which party said what and what they intended. Uh, your course of dealing is going to be important. A uh, judge will look at the course of dealing. Well, how did you get paid? How did you have control of the treatment? What was the relationship there? And, and then try to divine, so to speak, what that relationship was and fill in a contract term. That is an unfortunate place to be in because that's going to be expensive for both parties if they can't come to an agreement. Again, which speaks to the necessity of having a contract. I know a lot of, from, from calls that I get, doctors are reluctant because they know it's going to cost a couple thousand dollars to go to a competent attorney and have a comprehensive, clear contract drawn up between those parties. They don't want to do that because they're, they, they have stars in their eyes, like you said, and all is well, it's great. You know, how can this doctor possibly do something that's uh, going to be against my interest? We get along great. You know, we golf together, whatever the case may be. But two, three years down the road, the relationship sours, and you find yourself now in a very expensive proposition. And that two or three thousand dollars it may have cost to get a contract drafted by both parties now is going to cost fifteen or twenty five thousand dollars in litigation, and probably even more important, a lot of lost time in trying to figure out and litigate exactly what that relationship was. Let's say I am coming into a practice to work for another party. And that party uh, does have a contract, their own attorney draws up. Is that okay just to simply go with, with what my employer's contract offer is, or do I need my own attorney? It might be perfectly fine, Pam, to go with what that employer or whatever the status there might be, what their contract, what their contract says. I would always advise both parties to have their own attorney to review the contract. Now, in that case, the employee coming in may find an attorney and, and give that attorney, or maybe even it's a friend, I don't know, that's an attorney, and they take a look at the contract and they might spot a few things, or they might take a look at it and say, you know, this is a perfectly fair, reasonable contract. That could be the case. The point is, though, if you if, if the employer's attorney alone has presented that to you and you don't have your own attorney look at it, or if you don't look at it critically enough, th that that other attorney is looking out for the best interest of the other party. They are not looking out for the best best interest of you. Now, are they if they're if they're wise and if the employer is wise, are they crafting a fair agreement that's going to be mutually beneficial to both sides? Of course. That's obviously not always the case. Therefore, it's always important to hire your own attorney. It may cost some money, 
but I can I can promise you from the the kind of calls that I get and the frequency of the calls that I get about this particular issue, the money spent on the front side is uh, one of the best investments you can possibly make to make sure that that contract is fair to you. Just as orthodontic treatment is a great investment in your overall dental health for the long term. If our listeners are looking for pointers on how to locate and select an attorney in their area, uh, what kinds of resources does the AAO offer? We do have a, a short summary that kind of lists the pros and cons of different types of lawyers and different different sizes of law firms that you might want to take a look at in your area. It's online. You can find it under the, the um, advocacy and legal section. A quick note on that, too, I and this is in that summary, but I think it bears mentioning here, it is never a bad idea when you're in practice to find an attorney before you actually need one. And most of the time, you don't even need to to pay them any money up front. Or if you do, it'd be a retainer that if you ever use them, that it would go against what they what they are charging you. And and sometimes attorneys will request a, a retainer, maybe five hundred dollars, and that that allows them to do a conflict check and and hold them to you. They wouldn't be able to take any patients or any any other clients that may be in conflict with you without your without your waiver first. And what that does for you is a couple of things. It gives you some assurance because usually when you need an attorney you need them pretty fast. And you don't want to be in a position of duress when you're trying to make an important decision like who your attorney will be. So if you get the relationship established prior to actually needing one, you'll have more time to make a wise decision. You might even be able to negotiate a better deal because you're not going to, again, be under duress. And it's peace of mind. So you know that if something comes up, you have someone you can call or email, and they know who you are, and they know your business, and they know that uh, they are advocating for you right off the bat. Kevin, are there attorneys that that really deal specifically with health care and, and even a subspecialty of, of dentistry? Absolutely, there are. You find that, obviously, more often in, in larger metropolitan areas, but in most even mid- and smaller-sized cities, you'll find attorneys who specialize in medical care or at least, if not dentistry, in, in, in the industry of medicine or health care, and they're going to be more familiar with the terms and, and the kind of relationships that you're going to come in contact with, with with patients. Speaking of terms, that reminds me, I wanted to ask if the AAO offers any kind of, a, for lack of a better word, a glossary of terms that might be found in a contract. We do, Pam. It is online. It's it's a contract guide, the AAO's contract guide. And what that is, is we, we took a, a sample contract um, I don't know who it was offered by or who it was offered to, but it was is an actual contract that was sent to us some time ago that is an employment contract for an orthodontist. It could have been from – it could be – moving forward, it could be from a dental service organization or it could be from just a sole practitioner who is offering an associateship or something like that. I intentionally made the agreement – made sure that the agreement was not perfect. And I went through each clause of the contract – to explain what the purpose of the contract is or what the purpose of that clause is, even boilerplates like time is of the essence or integration or severability clauses. And I also pointed out where that contract is lacking because, you know, in my experience, I see a lot of these contracts and most of them are lacking in some respect, some some area or another. So it's a, it's a resource for folks to take a look at. They can They can read through the contract guide I, I wouldn't use it as a template for a contract because, again, I said I, it is intentionally not a perfect contract so that I could show some of the inefficiencies and deficiencies of it. 
But familiarizing yourself with the terms, the glossary, as you said, of that contract and what sort of clauses should be in the contract, even this podcast, even take a recording of this podcast in that contract guide to your attorney might save you a couple of hours worth of research for that attorney. Kevin, in summary then, is your advice to hire an attorney to execute a contract when an individual is working, when an orthodontist is working as an employee or as an independent contractor? I would say it is always a good idea to have an attorney take a look at a document as important as the contract that you're that is going to be governing your professional career over the term of that contract. So look for pointers on how to locate and select an attorney, sample agreements, and a glossary to define terms that might be found in a contract on uh, aaoinfo.org in our legal and advocacy section. Let's take a short break, and when we return, Kevin Dillard will tell us about the advisability or inadvisability of participating in charity auctions or group discounts. What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile, thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training, the experience, and the treatment options like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now, my smile makes me smile. For your best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org. The American Association of Orthodontists. Welcome back to Episode 5 of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. I'm Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel, here to discuss whether orthodontists should or should not consider participating in charity auctions or group discounts. Kevin, welcome back. Thanks. Kevin, let's start with the concept of offering up treatment of one case at a charity auction, say for a, for a school. Now, on the surface, you know, I do marketing. It has a great PR value, but are there downsides to a charity auction of a of an orthodontic treatment case, there are there are huge downsides to it, and and I, I from a marketing perspective, I, I I understand how appealing it could be. You're getting into, especially in a private school setting, you're getting into a potentially well healed audience. You're saying you might give away treatment, but in in exchange, you know you're probably going to get a patient that you know you're going to be confident you're going to have a good outcome, and then you're going to get referrals from that patient. So it sounds like a good idea. It sounds like good advertising because you'll get good PR at this charity auction uh, where perhaps hundreds of private school parents are going to be walking through and seeing your name. The, The downside, Pam, is that you are giving up control of patient selection, which is one of the most valuable assets uh, non-financial assets that an orthodontist has. Uh, orthodontists can turn away any patient they want to, except for any of the recognized uh, discrimination, um, protected discrimination uh, status. So race, gender, religion, that kind of thing. You, you obviously can't discriminate patients on those bases. However, you can you can discriminate, for lack of a better term, patients who have low credit scores, patients of parents who have low credit scores, whoever's going to be paying, uh, impro- you know, insurance that you don't like working with. Um, even if you just have a bad feeling about the patient, if it's if it's not going to be a good relationship, we talked a, a episode or two ago about just having a bad feeling about a patient. You know they're going to be a problem patient. You can you can turn away those patients. Well, if you auction away a comprehensive treatment for say two thousand dollars at charity auction, and that patient or the parent buys that uh, treatment and they walk in, you have just lost your control of patient selection. And which then opens up a whole host of problems. Let's say they walk in and they've they purchased comprehensive orthodontic treatment for two thousand dollars, 
and you take a look at them and they're going to need jaw surgery and they're going to need extractions or whatever. And it's going to be a total of $15,000. And now what do you do? You, you auctioned off comprehensive orthodontic, orthodontic therapy. So are you on the hook for paying the oral surgeon, the general dentist? What happens if they have terrible hygiene? What, what happens if they're not a candidate for orthodontic treatment at all? But if you take a look at them and say that, you know, I'm sorry, it's just you're not going to benefit from orthodontic therapy. Now, is that probable? Probably not likely, but it's possible. And in that case, who, I mean, who they're, they're going to want a refund. And so who pays the $2,000 back to the patient or the parent? Is it going to be the school? Probably not, because that was a charitable donation. So you're probably going to be on the hook for giving them $2,000. So imagine that scenario by trying to be a good Samaritan and trying to auction away and trying to help your private school, what you're going to do is, in that case, end up paying out of pocket to a patient that you never treated. And likely, maybe even they're going to walk away with ill will because they're not going to understand why they can't benefit from orthodontic therapy. So you're paying $2,000 perhaps to a patient who, who gave that money to the school and you're getting bad will as opposed to good marketing. Kevin, can you put a disclaimer on the auction that would protect you? You probably can, but, you know, it's a practical issue. It's going to look like a lot of fine print. You might be able to have that, especially if you work out with a school, so you don't get into that situation where you're paying the child back. You might might work it out with a school to make it contingent. Well, if this patient is is a good candidate for orthodontic therapy, then accept their money. If not, then don't accept the money so that there's not none of this issue. But in practical terms, a patient is going to walk in and they're going to expect comprehensive orthodontic treatment for that agreed upon exchange, $2,000 or whatever the auction ended up being. And if they're not a candidate, they're going to walk away again with, with ill will. A more likely scenario than the, um, than the scenario in which they wouldn't be a candidate for orthodontic therapy is if they're just a bad patient. They, they don't have good hygiene. They don't show up for appointments. Perhaps the patient, the, the parents get belligerent with your staff or whatever, and, and it's just not a good relationship and you need to terminate that treatment. Well, there again, uh, unless you've signed an additional financial contract with the parent or the responsible party showing that, uh, you know, there are additional responsibilities over that price that they paid for the school auction, then you get into problems of, you know, well, if you, if you dismiss them, how much do you owe them because it was a charity? So it just becomes very complicated. For all those reasons, I understand why it's good PR, it's good marketing to go to a school charity, but instead of auctioning off a case, perhaps maybe a better use of funds might be to kick in a donation to help pay for the food or help pay for some actual prizes, you know, tickets to a local theme park or something like that provided by the, the orthodontist just to get the, the good name and the, and the good reputation out there. Continuing on the marketing theme, let's talk a little bit about group discounts and, and uh, doing marketing, practice marketing in that way, or, or maybe not. Well, it depends. You know, these have, have proliferated in the last couple of years where you have group discounts offered through, through emails and such or websites. Uh, some states have labeled these arrangements illegal fee splitting. And they're not even able to allow them to offer those those discounts or those those kind of arrangements to dentists and orthodontists. But really, it's the same thing, Pam. It's the same thing as a school auction. You're losing control of patient selection. Let's say you just even set up your own group discount and you just do it you, you, on, on your own. And you put on your, your website, you say, the first 10 people who email our office or, or comment on our Facebook post will get orthodontic treatment for $2,500 comprehensive orthodontic treatment for $2,500. Well, you're running into the same exact issues as you are with a, the, the charity auction. 
you're going to have people coming in. They think they've got a valid contract with you. And you know what? They very well might, depending upon your state advertising laws, because you offered, you said the first 10 people to email or comment gets comprehensive treatment for $2,500. So that, that very well could be a binding contract. It's an offer. It's, it's offering consideration for it. And the patient comes in, they accept it, and they give you $2,500. Now, are you uh, obligated to give them orthodontic treatment for $2,500? Very likely. So in that case, it's the same thing. What happens if they're not a candidate? What happens if they need surgery and it's going to be a ten dollars or $20,000 ordeal? What happens if they turn out to be bad patients? What happens if you need to terminate that treatment halfway through? It all goes back to patient selection. The most valuable thing to protect, or one of the most valuable things to protect in a practice, is your ability to screen patients to make sure that they're not going to cost you more than what you are than what you're getting for uh, the, the treatment. But beyond that, it's all about the health of the patient. It's not just in terms of finances. If the patient is not in a, the right mental state to get treatment and you think that putting braces on them is going to harm them in some way because they're not going to be responsible, you have a duty not to treat those patients. And if you do treat them to make sure that they are cared for throughout treatment. So Again, you lose control of patient selection. You start putting braces on people who might not be in the place to have them on. And it's your duty to protect those patients' health. Even six months, a year and a half down the road into treatment, you are the, you are the healthcare practitioner and you, it's your responsibility to take care of the health of the patient. Our members are good people, and they like to be able to contribute to the community and help people in some way. If orthodontists really want to offer free or discounted care, maybe they should consider becoming providers for donated orthodontic services or or maybe similar programs instead of participating in these kinds of uh, other marketing Mm-hmm. activities? Absolutely. And, and, and the advantage of, of going with a program like the AO's Donated Orthodontic Service is that you don't lose control of the patient selection. You're still screening those patients. You're still seeing the patients. You're not obligated to treat anybody by virtue of them already accepting a contract before you even know who they are. So th- that that's a safe way to to, to provide treatment, even, even operating outside of those charitable organizations. If you just if, if you know that you have a patient who can't afford treatment but could really benefit from orthodontic therapy, is going to be a responsible patient, is not going to harm themselves, then there, there's nothing wrong with providing the pro bono treatment. Again, it, as long as you have control over patient selection. Kevin, is there some place our members can go online for information about uh, charity auctions and group discounts? There is, Pam. There's a legal summary under the legal and advocacy tab on the aoinfo.org website that uh, deals specifically with that. As a matter of fact, I think it's entitled Charity Auctions and Group Discounts. And it goes into a little bit more detail about um, thing, red flags, things to look for, and, and things to avoid. Great. And that's a wrap for Episode 5 of the AAO's Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, for sharing your advice with AAO members. More can be found on the member website, aaoinfo.org, in the Legal and Advocacy section. Join us for future podcasts as AAO experts explore questions and issues that are important to you in your orthodontic practice. If you have subject areas you'd like addressed on a future podcast, please email those to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 5.